Well, good morning, my friends. I'm so glad you could be with me today as together we continue to study God's Word. Isn't it a wonder that the God who is really there has chosen to speak, to breathe out His eternal truth, and He's made it possible for us to access what He's said in the Scriptures? I hope you have that sense of awe and thankfulness that we serve a God like that. Well, as you know, we've been in the midst of a study of the book of Romans, working our way through it verse by verse. Last time we finished chapter 1, and today I want to pick up chapter 2 of the book of Romans. I'm going to be reading today a couple of verses. We won't look at all of them today, but I want to read them as a unit. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We've been talking at the end of chapter 1 of the book of Romans about the tragic consequences of sin. How the wonder of verse 16 in chapter 1, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, that gospel is needed for everybody. All stand under the need of that solution that was found through Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Yet, the mankind responds to God in a rebellious manner. And God then turns attention to the consequences, the outgrowths of that rebelliousness against God in the human condition. Sin's mastery over mankind, rather than mankind's mastery over sin, becomes the characteristic picture of human society. This mastery of sin over humanity is the outgrowth of God's giving them over, is the phrase repeated several times at the end of the first chapter. That mastery of sin and the proof it gives us of the need for the gospel is seen in the power of sin reflected in sexual immorality, the power of sin reflected in sexual perversion, and the power of sin reflected in all of the outgrowths of a debased mind. I encourage you to go back and review those various teachings, looking at that last part of chapter 1, if some of that stuff's still not very clear to you. Now, today, chapter 2 opens by turning our attention to a related issue, and it is this. What about the good people, quote, in the midst of the society in which we find ourselves? In other words, what about those people whose basic orientations in life and choices in life do not reflect themselves in excesses of sexual immorality or excesses of sexual perversion or excesses of those actions tied to a debased mind. Those types of people who, in the human terms, are relatively more righteous than other people are, 
have a tendency to look at those who are openly sexually immoral, or look at those who are openly sexually perverted, or look at those who act out the debased mind, the illogical, unreasonable sort of thinking that characterizes a debased mind. They look at those people, and they tend to feel better about themselves. So here's the core question. And chapter 2 of the book of Romans is turning our attention to this question. What is the true condition, therefore, of the relatively good people before the God who is really there? Now, as we look at the human condition, we situate people on a continuum from relatively good to the dregs of society, the people whose lives are shipwrecks of sin. And we look at this broad spectrum, this broad continuum, and the question is, while the condemnation of people at the bad side of the continuum seems apparent, what about the people near the upper levels of it, who essentially are relatively good, particularly compared to those who are under the power of sin in some expressive way? Well, that's the question that chapter 2 begins to develop for us. And I hope you'll stick with me in the days ahead as we begin to see what God has to say about this all-important question. Here's the fact about the human condition. When you consider people's slavery to sin and the different ways that slavery shows up, it's easy for the relatively religious person the relatively moral, upright person, to begin to feel just a little bit superior to those whose lives are shipwrecks and whose lives sort of reflect the degeneracy of the broader expressions of sin. Such people, the religious, morally upright type of people, tend to think, when they think about God, they tend to think, or at least hope, that God is a God who marks on a curve. Now, those of you that perhaps outside of the academic world may not recognize that phrase, but what it means is that it's not uncommon in school for a teacher to mark on a curve. Instead of marking on an absolute basis, they put all of the scores that are earned on a given test, and then they curve them so that those that are at the upper part of the scoring get A's and then B's and C's. So in other words, nobody is going to get an absolute A, but if it's marked on a curve on a test, somebody could still get an A even if they didn't quite earn the perfect grade that should have resulted in the A. That's marking on a curve. Well, people tend to wish and hope that God would have that response to humanity. If they are relatively righteous compared to a bunch of other people who aren't so righteous, that on the curve, even though they're not perfect, they would be in the passing grade. That God would look at them and say, well, you're good enough. You can be with me. You can come to heaven. You can have a future and a hope with me. That's what they want. They want to believe they have a passing grade. And they affirm themselves on that basis. In fact, one of the characteristics of that hope is that it pushes people toward a very judgmental response to others. 
uh, a self-righteous judgment of those who seem to have fallen further down on the curve because of their sin choices in life. It makes us feel more hopeful about our own lives and outcome if we can concentrate on people who've really messed up in their lives. You follow the dynamic here? And therefore, self-righteous judgment of sinners, debased sinners, is at the heart of the righteous person's struggle. Luke chapter 18, verses 19 to 14, describe this perfectly as Jesus gives us this picture. Listen to these words. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed that, God, I thank you, I'm not like those other men. This men, it's uh, in fact, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all that I get. But the tax collector standing off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What's the issue? Many, like the Pharisee, looking at other people, especially those in shipwrecks of life, and they look at themselves and feel superior. They feel they're going to make it on the relative benefits of their own performance, their own good works. That's the individual that we're talking about now, that God is turning our attention to in Romans chapter 2. Here's the underlying point, however, that is misunderstood overlooked by people fitting into the relatively righteous category. And it is this, that Romans 1, in describing these behaviors of having been given over to the power of sin, behaviors that prove sin's slavery over fallen mankind, misunderstand that is not the reason mankind is lost. It is simply a proof of lostness. It's not the reason for lostness. Sin's power is dominating in people who are, who are alienated from God and unrepentant. But it's not the reason they're alienated from God. The fact is, no matter where humanity situates themselves on this continuum of performance, from relatively good to shipwreck, all of us are lost. Because all stand guilty before God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, which in the third chapter of Romans we'll see in more depth. We are separated from God because we are all sinners, not because some of us are worse sinners than other people are. All are ultimately ungodly. All have broken the greatest commandment to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Therefore, everyone stands justly condemned, and separated from God. The error of the righteous person is as disastrous as the error of the degenerate sinners. <laughs> All of us think that relationship with God is going to somehow be tied to the things we do, when in point of fact, relationship with God is tied entirely to what Christ has done for us. Well, join me tomorrow as we continue to examine these things further. God bless.